All right, we are continuing our study of Acts chapter 2 here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 37, down to the end of the chapter in verse 47. It's the response of the crowd to Peter's Pentecost sermon. So just to set that in context, the apostles in the first little bit of chapter 2 are filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the mighty words of God, the mighty deeds of God, and the the crowd in Jerusalem begins to hear them in their own native languages, languages that the apostles had not learned, but somehow in speaking or somehow in hearing or somehow God worked a miracle so that the crowd heard what the apostles said in their own native language. Well, obviously, the that plus the sound of a mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire really caused a crowd to rush together like, what's going on? We said we think that's probably happening in the temple where there's a, a one place for a large gathered crowd. It's nine in the morning when this happens. And then the crowd, as they gather, leads to the opportunity for Peter and the other apostles with him to preach really the first gospel sermon. And so that was what we looked at in our last recording, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which proclaimed how God had poured out his spirit. He had done that through Jesus, that Jesus really is the Lord who's pouring out the spirit. And Jesus is the Lord that you need to call on if you want to be saved. Now, in the context of making that point, what Peter has also said is, Jesus is that Lord, he is the Christ, and he's also the one that you're responsible for killing. (laughs) Think of that if you're a Jew standing in the crowd, and you've been waiting for God to fulfill his promises, maybe that includes waiting for the Messiah, and you've just heard a message that says Jesus was that Messiah, his resurrection is observable, tangible, historical proof of that, And you killed him. You're responsible for that. Well, that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. The crowd has heard this message, and how do they respond? Listen to the question and what is said in verse 37. It says this, Now, when they heard this, that is the crowd, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we supposed to do? So when the crowd hears this, they are deeply convicted. That's the force of pierced to the heart. This is like, we're we're like deep conviction, deep heart piercing, heartbroken over this. You mean we executed our Messiah, but God raised him from the dead. How, How, what are we supposed to do now? How do we respond to that? Brothers, what are we supposed to do? And notice the focus is Peter and the rest of the apostles, which we said all throughout chapter 2, the focus is on Peter and the apostles. That's why I think that it's best to understand the pouring out of the Spirit and the visible phenomena and the speaking in other languages that happens here on the day of Pentecost to have happened not to the whole 120 of chapter 1, but only to the apostles because the whole focus really is the apostles. Either way, that's an aside. Here they ask the question of Peter and the apostles who gave the message, what are we supposed to do? How does Peter respond? Well, Peter's response to them is to give them a very tangible, clear uh, call to action that is easily to, to fulfill, that allows them to respond to this message and actually become part of Jesus's family. Look what he says, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
come back to the gift of the Holy Spirit here in just a second, but notice the first little bit. Peter says, repent. What does the word repent mean? Well, the basic idea of the word repent is to change your thinking, but it's always a change of thinking that leads to a change of action, that our behavior follows our ideas and our beliefs. And so change your behavior, change your thinking. It's the idea of turning around and going the opposite direction. That's the idea of repent. And so change your course, repent, and each of you should be baptized. Uh, This is a first call to Christian baptism here is you should be baptized. Now, in the Jewish context, they were well familiar with ritual washings. Uh, they were That was just part of their, their worship practices was to be washed. You're right, no one could even go into the temple to participate in worship if they weren't ritually clean. And so there were washing pools around the temple. There were large pools near the temple in the Jerusalem area. And so This idea of sort of what you might call a ritual washing had large history among the Jews in the first century. And so when Peter says, be baptized, uh, there's no question about that. That makes sense to them in their context. They understand it. They understand ritual washing and all that. Uh, This fits right in with that for them. Not only that, you had John the Baptist as a kind of an antecedent to this, a predecessor of this, who was practicing baptism as a call to repentance and all of that and preparing them for the coming of Messiah. And so they are well prepared for this. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not like just Peter, you know, stuck his hand in a theological hat and pulled, oh, baptism, right? Like, no, there's, there's a historical precedent for this type of thing, okay? And the word baptized is actually not a true translation of the word. It's just a transliteration of the word, meaning writing the Greek word in English letters. The Greek word is baptizo, and it just means to dip, to immerse, or to submerge. And so this is what they did in their ritual washings. Anyhow, this is what the word means. And so repent, and each of you should be immersed or submerged in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, meaning the name represents the person, represents his authority. And so you're going to be immersed into the name of, into the authority of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That word for in Greek is ice. And the the Greek word ice is, the basic meaning is into. It always has motion towards something, motion into or motion unto something. And so this repentance and baptism is into the forgiveness of sins. Uh, It is into a state of being forgiven. Yes, you're responsible. Peter held them accountable, we emphasized in our last recording, for putting Jesus to death. Even though it was according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of God's men. You put him to death. You killed the Messiah. But that sin and any other sins can be forgiven when you will enter into the name of Jesus with repentance and baptism, Peter says. Not only that, uh, not only will you receive forgiveness, but you will also, he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you enter into Jesus by virtue of repentance and baptism, you will receive both forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit. So what Joel chapter 2 promised, the Old Testament quote that Peter quoted to begin his message, Joel chapter 2, what the apostles had experienced on this day, that's not like limited to just them. 
God is making his spirit available to all. And so you can, Peter says, you can receive it too. In fact, he goes on in verse 39 and says, for the promise, meaning the promise of the spirit, the promise of coming into Messiah's family and receiving his spirit is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off. So you, living right now, your children, that does not mean little children. There was a, there's a specific word for little children and even babies in Greek. This is not that. This just means offspring or descendants. This promise is for you and for your descendants. That's what it means. So those who are distant in time, those who are to come after you, the promise is for them too. And spatial distance, and for who are all who are far away. So that even hints at the Gentiles. In fact, it alludes to an Old Testament text um, from Isaiah that says, in the days of the Messiah, God's going to make him a light to the nations and to all those who are far off. You can find that in Isaiah 57 verse 19. And so this promise of the Spirit, this promise of coming into Messiah's family is for them living right there and hearing Peter's message. It's for their descendants who will come later. And it's for anybody who is scattered far away that God wants to make Messiah a light to all peoples and to all nations for, our, for all time. And so God is going to bring them to himself. And then Luke gives sort of a general summary statement that you know, the message didn't just end with that. Peter and the other apostles kept speaking. And, and Luke's summary says this in verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this crook crooked generation. Be rescued from it. And so Peter kept preaching this. I'm, I'm sure the other apostles were in on it, too, and kept telling people, inviting people, and calling people to be saved from this. And how did the people respond? to this message. Well, look at verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And so there was a number of them that welcomed. That's the idea of received. They welcomed this message. Yes, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, we've seen the empty tomb. We went and checked it ourselves, you know, during the last month and a half. Yes, we heard the reports. Yes, we recognize we, we've put the put the Messiah to death. We want to be part of his family. We want to make things right. We will repent. And so they received the word and they were baptized. How many? And there were added about that day, 3,000 souls. So you got to have a fairly large crowd of people to for a percentage of them to welcome the word and be baptized to, in order for 3,000 of them to be added, right? And so 3,000 people were baptized. Some have said, oh, there wasn't enough water you know, in Jerusalem to, to baptize that many people. Uh, that's just uh, fails to recognize the topography and geography of Jerusalem. There was the Pool of Bethesda uh, in Jerusalem. There was the Pool of Siloam. There were various uh, mikvehs or ritual washing pools in Jerusalem. There was plenty of water there for people to be baptized. And so they had a massive, long baptism service, and about 3,000 people were added to uh, the family that day. Now, what Luke does next then in verse 42 to the end of the chapter is then describe what life was like for this first gathering of Christians, right? We went from 120 people who spent 10 days after Jesus' ascension uh, just praying and reading the scriptures and meditating on scriptures and praying some more and thinking it all through and getting this thing sorted out. We went from 120 people to adding about 3,000 people in one day. So now you have this massive 
new community of Jesus followers there in Jerusalem. What was their life like together? Well, verses 42 through 47, Luke just gives a summary of how this first church there in Jerusalem acted, what they did, what their priorities were, uh, how they interacted together, and what the result was. So look at verse 42. Verse 42 really describes, if you will, like the four priorities of the very first church. It says this, they, all those who were baptized and were added, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those were their four priorities. The apostles' teaching, meaning listening to the apostles teach, and specifically to the content of their teaching. So they they wanted to understand. They knew they needed to know some things. They needed to read, learn how to read the scriptures the way Jesus taught the apostles to read the scriptures. And so they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, and so hearing the apostles teach what the apostles taught and to fellowship, that's the second priority. Fellowship is one of those uniquely kind of religious words that we don't really use very often. What does the word fellowship mean? Well, the root word just means common or partner, right? It's the idea of having things in common, being together, being partners, right? Like, so to fellowship means to partnering together and holding things in common, to being united together and spending time together. And so there was fellowship. There was this gathering together and um, having their faith and their belief in Jesus. And we'll even see that meant what they did with their material possessions, that they, they had all things in common. So fellowship, to the breaking of bread, uh, which many commentators uh, say that refers to the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, whatever name your tradition calls it. And yes, I think it does probably refer to that, but not exclusively. We know from the further description here in chapter two that they also were eating together. But in the context of eating together, they were doing what Jesus said, that as often as you gather together, remember me by the bread and the cup. And so the breaking of bread includes eating together and, and celebrating Jesus and celebrating his death on their behalf and the new covenant that he has formed in and through that death. And so uh, teaching, fellowship, uh, eating together and celebrating communion together and to prayer or more literally the prayers. It's actually plural in Greek to the prayers. And they were committed to that, to probably the daily prayers in the temple. They're Jews, after all. That's been part of their life. They were committed to that. But also the ongoing prayer uh, of God's people together now in Jesus' name. And so uh, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, that's what their priorities were. In verse 43, then, Luke just gives this general description of how that all played out in their life. It says this, verse 43 and following. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, this sense of reverence, this sense of like awestruck at what God was doing and what God had done in Jesus and what God was doing among them. So they felt this sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And so the apostles are doing miracles. Wonders and signs are two words that refer to miracles. And so they're performing miracles and people are feeling a sense of awe. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. Do you see that word common? It's related to the word fellowship in verse 
42. And so they were together, literally upon the same things, that they were, that there was this joint-mindedness, this, this togetherness that they had, and they had all things in common. They, not by force, Luke's going to describe how that played out. It wasn't like they were forced to put every, all their possessions into a common pool and everyone was going to be equal in that regard. It's that they held their things loosely and they used their possessions for the common good. So this isn't like proto-communism or anything like that. This is voluntary because of what the spirit of Jesus was doing in them, making them love one another so well that they wanted to make sure everyone was taken care of. We'll see how that plays out here shortly. So they had all things in common. And notice, here's the description, verse 45. They would sell their property and possessions. Two things. It was their property. Luke even notices. They, but they would sell it, their property and their possessions, and share them with all. That word share there is this idea of giving to, right? Like it's even related to the word fellowship. Like this is how they had things in common. Um oh, you have a need. I think I can meet that need if I sell this off and I don't need it. And so they would sell their property or their possessions and they would give to people who had needs to the extent that anyone had a need. And that was the way they took care of each other. This is a radical reorientation of really priorities with regard to material possessions. Like, the wealthy, those who, the haves, actually were willing and chose to have less so that those who had not could have a little bit more. And this was a way they demonstrated uh, their love for one another. This is a work of the Spirit of God in the heart of people that makes them want to care for, in tangible, concrete ways, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and as Jesus said, this is the way all men will know that uh, you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, love shows up in concrete, tangible, seeable, doable sorts of ways. They're loving one another by selling their property and possessions and sharing them with each other. Not only that, verse 46, day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple. Notice they're meeting in the temple and they're worshiping God together in the temple. The temple is the one place that has a large enough space where they can gather together. In fact, we'll learn later in Acts that one of the regular places they met in the temple was called Solomon's Porch. We'll talk about that, that the temple had meeting areas and it had uh, porticos or porches in the temple where people could gather. And so they were meeting as a large group in the temple because there was space there. And they were breaking bread from house to house. So now they're eating meals. They're meeting uh, as a large group in the temple. They're meeting in smaller groups in people's homes, breaking bread, having meals together from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so as, as the rest of Jerusalem looks on at what's happening in these first few weeks of the early church, notice they favor them. They looked on them with, wow, that is amazing. That's incredible. That's great. Uh, and they were having favor with all the people. And so the end result was this, verse 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so as a result of their worship and their life together, God was drawing through them and through the light that they were in town, God was drawing more and more people to himself and the Lord was adding. Notice the emphasis is on his prerogative. The Lord was adding to their number 
day by day, those who were being saved. So day by day, more people were coming into the family, becoming part of the fellowship and experiencing the blessing of this life together that's described here in Acts chapter 2. All right, let's step back and summarize just a little bit. Although it's taken us three recordings to to get through Acts chapter 2, in reality, it's one giant scene in the story of the book of Acts. It's one story, and the theme of this story revolves around God's Spirit. Really, the theme is simply that God has poured out His Spirit. God has given His Spirit. Just as He promised in the prophets, God has done it, and he's done it in and through Jesus the Messiah. And so the Spirit has now been poured out, which is a clear indicator that indeed Jesus was the Messiah and that we've moved forward in salvation history, that the new era has broken into the here and now, and we now live during the overlap of the ages, the overlap of time where the old age, the things of this world is passing away, but the new era, the new creation has come because God has poured out his spirit and he's poured out his spirit to indwell his people and empower his people to live his way and to carry forward his mission. So the day of Pentecost in a very real sense is the day of transition, the day of transition from uh, the old age to the age to come. And we have now begun that through the exaltation of Jesus and the giving of his spirit. It's the transition from the age of promise to the age of fulfillment. And so now that Jesus has come and the spirit has been poured out, we are living in the days of fulfillment, the last days before God makes all things new. And so as we read Acts chapter 2, as we teach or preach or lead a study on Acts chapter 2, we must remember that one of the key distinctives of the church is that we are the people of the Spirit. We're we're not just the people of the Father or the people of the Messiah. We're also people of the Spirit, that God's Spirit has been poured out to live among us. And we are, in a very real sense, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. That's what it means to be the church. We are the very dwelling place of God, the very temple of God, now by His Spirit, who lives in us. And so we are the people of the Spirit. And this ought to affect everything about us. As we see at the end of Acts chapter 2, it affected everything about them, especially it manifested itself in their life together. The Spirit was teaching them to love one another the way the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Son, and the Spirit loves the Father, and the the three in one relate together while the Spirit has come among us that we might love one another the way God the Father, Son, and Spirit loves each other and the way that God the Father, Son, and Spirit loves us as well. And when the Spirit makes that change in us, when we begin to uh, be impacted by and affected by and full of the Spirit so that we really love one another the way we see the early church doing here in Acts 2, then we will be a city set on a hill. Then the Lord can continue to add people to our number day by day, those who are being saved.